Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Reimagining a Place for the Wild is a new collection of personal stories that describe encounters with the remaining wild creatures of the American West and critical essays that reveal wildlife's essential place in Western landscapes. Gleaned from historians, journalists, biologists, ranchers, artists, philosophers, teachers, and conservationists, these narratives expose the complex challenges faced by wild animals and those devoted to understanding them. We're going to be talking with the editors of this book, which is out from University of Utah Press, on the program uh, today, and talking about this very interesting topic, Reimagining a Place for the Wild. Uh, Leslie Miller directs the Reimagine Western Landscapes Initiative. She was a leading advocate for open space preservation in Park City and has served on the University of Utah College of Humanities Partnership Board since 2003. She's a writer with feature stories in Park City Magazine, Salt Lake City Weekly, Carmel Magazine, and other publications. Uh, Leslie Miller, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate you being with us today. Louise Excel is Emeritus Professor of English and Humanities at Dixie State University. She now volunteers for environmental projects and serves on the boards of the Virgin River Land Preservation Association, Mesa Retreat Center for Writers and Artists, and uh, Reimagine Western Landscapes Initiative. Louise Excel, welcome to the program. Good morning, Tom. Happy to be here. Good, good to have you on. Uh, I believe you're in uh, Springdale? Correct. Yeah, beautiful Springdale. Uh, Christopher Smart has been a Utah journalist since 1983, formerly educated in biology. He's long been interested in the wild and meaning it holds for culture and people. Christopher Smart, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. Uh, We are glad to have you with us. Let me start with uh, uh, Leslie Miller. Um, Reimagine Western Landscapes Initiative. What, What is that? Oh, it's a group of uh, humanists and people interested in protecting the wild landscapes of the western United States and the wildlife um, that inhabit those landscapes. Uh, We formed this this group about, oh, I didn't say about seven years ago, uh, with the purpose of introducing the humanities into the discussion of environmental concerns. Uh, and you write uh, that uh, with the environmental humanities, you believe in the power of nature to transform lives, number one, and the power of language and story to reveal hidden truths. Yes, I do. I think that stories have always had the power to shape and transform our world. And I understand that stories must be relevant uh, and reflective of our times. And I think that these stories in our book couldn't be more relevant. And as Harvey Locke, one of our essays, says that we need to change the story we live by, and I hope that these stories will help us do that. Louise Excel, I got similar questions. Uh, environmental humanities, uh, the power of story. You've uh, you, you know spent your career in English and humanities, Dixie State University, also very much involved in environmental causes. Uh, tell me a little bit about the uh, uniting of those two. Well. Um... I'm sure your very um, informed listening audience understands what the humanities are, but I have to tell you that about 30 years ago when I got my uh, first full-time teaching job at Dixie State, um, I proudly announced to one of uh, my friends that I had been hired to teach humanities, and the response I got was, What's that? <laughs> uh, I don't think that's the case now, 30 years later. But it, it is interesting to note that um, the humanities 
um, which include uh, the study of ancient and modern language, literature, philosophy, history, human geography, law, politics, religion, art. Um, those disciplines um, and study in any of those humanities disciplines helps us examine, explore, and evaluate uh, the historical and cultural perspectives that make up the shared human experiences. They provide us with distinct opportunities to deepen our relationship with other cultures and other ways of seeing the world and acting in it. And very importantly, I think the humanities let us examine our relationship with nature and how we think about the natural world in ways that complement scientific study. Now, having said that, the tools of the humanities, I think, are not the, the controlled experiments and the precise measures that scientific studies require. But the humanities do rely on rational analysis, and they bring with that emotional insight and imagination and the stories, I think, and I, I know... Chris wants to talk a little bit about stories. Yeah, uh, Christopher Smart, um, a Utah journalist, formerly educated in biology. I didn't know that uh, about you. Uh, so I'm uh, so a diverse career. <laughs> I'm looking at your latest stories in the Salt Lake Tribune: uh, sex trafficking, Black Lives Matter, uh, hospice center, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But your background is in biology. Uh, yeah, that's right. I, I majored in biology, and I kind of accidentally got into journalism many years ago when I uh, began uh, working for the Daily Utah Chronicle up at the University of Utah, and uh, that was the end of that. But, uh, you know, I've, I do have a background. I've always been interested in the natural world. And uh, I think for many of us in in Utah, um, we we get to get out and understand that at least in to some degree, and and we like to get out and we call it recreation, but it's getting in touch with nature that uh, that makes us feel good. I think, um, but you know, many in many portions of this country, urban zones. People really don't get a chance to get out, and and I don't think they really have an understanding of of nature and the challenges we face. And and I so I think this book uh, speaks to that to some degree. Um, so uh, let me go around the panel uh, again and uh, <laughs> just ask if their their favorite writer. Uh, here, I, I have some uh, passages I, r I really want to uh, to get to, but uh, uh, let's start again with Leslie Miller. Uh, anything that particularly stands out to you that you want to mention right here? Um, did you? Would you like me to read a passage, yeah, that, that, or would you like be... me to just um, refer to one of my favorite writers? Uh, e e either way, whichever one you'd like. Well, I, I really, there's so many good. God, there's so many good stories in this book, really. And uh, but one of the one of the pieces that I really like is um, written by Jeremy Schmidt. And Jeremy Schmidt is also a biologist. He's a nat uh, National Geographic explorer, and he's an author. And he's written many books uh, about the natural world. And he has this passage in his story called "Waiting for Wolves," and he says this: "I quote, now I had seen them myself." 
the legendary red eyes in my personal firelight, real after all, howling in the best subarctic tradition, not gone in some distant past, not just legend. It pleased me to no end. The unseen became physical and stared at me across the gulf of unknowing. I just love that passage. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's an incredible encounter. Yes, he was he was uh, camping on a little island in I think it was one of the upper Great Lakes, and these wolves swam across from the mainland to their island and encircled their their campsite, and so his story is about that encounter and uh, his reflections about encountering the wild and what that means. But- do you think we need these encounters? Do you think you can uh, become passionate about this without without getting out there? Yeah, I think that I think that nature is all around us and we just have to be observant of nature and I think that even in urban settings, I mean there are ground squirrels and there are wild birds and there are mice and insects and we are connected to the natural world whether we admit that or not, we are and we are part of this vast biological web that is a miraculous formula. It is perfect, it is magical, and it is a miracle. And I think the more that we respect that and want to get to know it, the more we'll revere it and want to protect it. Louise Excel, do you have a favorite, uh, I don't know, uh, selection or passage from the book? Well, I I have many favorites, I have to say. Um, one I will point to right now. I Jeremy Schmidt is is lovely, and he um, the point that that Leslie just made about the the, the web of wildness all around us. Um, Jeremy um, discusses in Waiting for Wolves, but I'm gonna um, I think I'll I'll choose just for now Harvey Locke um, in his essay, which he calls "Reimagining the American West: Building a North American West for the People." who want to stay. Um, Harvey Locke um, is a conservationist writer and a a global leader in um, particularly wilderness and large landscape conservation. And uh, he he lives, uh, he's uh, Canadian, uh, but with roots in uh, the Montana frontier where his family settled. And uh, in his uh, essay, he says... We humans must learn to live, and I'm quoting now, we humans must learn to live with all of nature for our own good. Nature is not always convenient. We need processes that we do not control. We need floods and fires. We need undammed rivers. We need carnivores and undomesticated grazers, such as grizzly bears, wolves, and wild bison that perform key roles in the structure of ecosystems. We need humility. We need to treat our home with love. The land and our common history make us North American Westerners. Together, we should start building the West for the people who want to stay. We can do this with due regard for our own national traditions. We can restore equilibrium to our psyches and return at least half the land to a condition that would be recognizable to its first inhabitants. Then a bright future would lie ahead. 
the essential work for us North American Westerners to do is to right the wrongs done to nature, to Native people, and to ourselves in the place we call home. When we begin building the West for the people who want to stay, we will be on a way to fulfilling Wallace Stegner's prophecy of a society worthy of the scenery. For a civilization that embraces wildness, beauty, and difference will be healthier, happier, and more resilient than one that attempts to suppress them. We will know when we have arrived, that day when all of us and all the species that belong here live together again at home on the range of the North American West. Mm, And I'd like to say that one of the things that I think is so wonderful about this book is, is its uh, first amazing diversity, uh, the amazing uh, different voices that speak on the on the subject of wilderness, the wild, and wildlife. Um, it is it, impressive, but some of the writing um, is exquisite and always thoughtful. Uh, you, uh, he talks about Harvey Locke talks about a grand, a new grand narrative of uh, North American West. Um, and this is uh, part of reimagining, right? You, you have to imagine it before you can uh, accomplish it. That's that's our premise. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I wonder while we're while we're on Harvey Locke, uh, he uh, he's involved in the uh, Yellowstone to Yukon initiative. Can you tell me about that. Yes. Um, this is a, a, a grand initiative, and I, um, Leslie, I'm going to ask you to, to probably jump in here and fill in the gaps that I'm likely to leave. But the, the whole notion is that um, the remaining wildlife um, in, in the North American West uh, cannot, is not sustainable if it's confined to islands, isolated islands, uh, uh, cut off from migratory routes and um, and food sources and so on and and um, genetic diversity. So the whole idea behind the um, uh, Yukon Yellowstone initiative is to provide a uh, corridors, if you will, so that wildlife can do what it needs to do to have a sustainable population. This includes everything from elk and moose to grizzlies and wolves and um, and a lot of other uh, wildlife species. They need to be able to travel, follow food. Um, they need to travel for um, the purposes of mating and um, and near survival. So the idea is, is to create these, to work with um, um, municipalities, state governments, um, national governments, and uh, join all of those isolated islands of um, wildlife uh, with corridors that can move them um, up across two continents, essentially, uh, from Canada uh, down through the United States. And ultimately, wouldn't it be ideal if those wildlife corridors could run all the way from Yellowstone to the Mexican border so that all of the wildlife <laughs> species could have uh, migratory routes? 
Mm. And one of the things that I think is really remarkable about uh, Harvey's achievement with Y2Y, and your listeners can uh, go online and um, Google Y2Y and get a map of the lands and the landscapes that have been acquired or dedicated to these integral uh, uh, routes for uh, animals to move from island to island. And the other, uh, the other initiative that Harvey is really leading the way on is um, Half for Nature. And it's the view of a number of biologists and conservationists that we need to preserve 50% of the natural world that remains in our, on our planet in order for it to be sustainable. So he also has that initiative, and he it sounds like uh, an unaccomplishable dream, but they have worked so hard to make a difference, and it's working. There are, there are routes where these animals can move from island to island or from preserve to preserve. And so uh, this idea of reimagining, we really have to think outside of the box to, you know, recapture what we have lost or destroyed in the way of our environmental world. But uh, y 2 ynet is uh, where to where to find that Yellowstone dot uh, to Yukon. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, so Christopher Smart, uh, yeah, do you have a favorite uh, author or passage from the book? Well, yeah, I I do. And Louise and Leslie spoke to two of them. But um, one of the beauties of this book is that it doesn't, uh, the contributors are, some of them are conservationists and wildlife people, and and others are uh, just folks. Like, for example, we have Yvonne Martinell is a rancher in Centennial Valley, and she talks about, you know, her experience as a rancher and as an environmentalist. Um, this this book does more than kind of cheerlead for environmentalists. It also outlines challenges. Um, and uh, one author, Steve Prim, uh, invites um, environmentalists to kind of come down and and talk to folks like Yvonne Martinell and others who who may not whose chief interest may be other than environmentalism, but it's it's something that they live with. So, you know, we were uh, speaking about the grizzly bears and the need uh, so that these ecological islands are joined together. But Steve Prim has this uh, story about grizzly bears that brings us sort of back to Earth. And I'm going to. I'm reading here. Uh, a big male grizzly attacked a man, destroying his face, breaking both arms, severing fingers. The grizzly died from a gunshot wound. The man's father, amazingly enough, transported him for miles on an ATV and managed to call for help and keep his son alive. Their day ended a time zone away in Seattle Harborview Hospital. The man has been there since, surging, surgeons putting him back together. And then so uh, Steve Prim goes on to uh, try to get folks 
to understand some of the challenges and and some of the you know that ranchers and others uh, might face. We you know there are we many people believe that we ought to have these carnivores around. Steve Steve asked this questions. Uh, we want grizzlies back. We want them in large, robust, self-sustaining populations. We want, we want, we want. Do we realize what we're asking for? So this kind of uh, takes us, uh, I think, right to uh, the head of the debate where we know that some of us may realize and, and be convinced of the value of these populations, and others may not. And and so one of the challenges, and going back to the the idea that stories will help us move forward, is is telling stories that speak to people who are are not in the choir, so to speak. So I I think that adds you know people like like Stephen. In this rancher, Yvonne Martinell, uh, it's important to have their voices, and it's nice that their voices are included in this book. Uh, I want to follow up, uh, and then we'll need to go to break. Um, Wendy Fisher, executive director of Utah Open Lands, um, is included in the book, and uh, they work to uh, to get conservation easements. Uh, she talks about common ground. She's hopeful that, uh, and she says it's necessary. We're going to have to find common ground. I wonder, Christopher Smart, if uh, that's happening, and and is is it possible? Well, Wendy Fisher is an amazing person, and she f- does find common ground with the uh, landowners and developers, and she has been able to uh, get her community uh, together to uh, buy uh, open space that that could have been. Uh, prime ground for real estate development. So, so there are folks that can do this, and I think the way forward is is going to be finding common ground. Uh, we, you know, we we have a tendency to dig in and uh, fight for our values, and and that's good and it's necessary, uh, particularly. In this day and age, when uh, we're we're losing species right and left, but I, I think the way forward is common ground. And you know, Wendy Fisher is a marvelous example of someone who has done that. And and uh, she does have a piece in here, and uh, that uh, and she goes through some of those challenges. And it's it's uh, nice to see somebody. Uh, an individual like Wendy who's making such a big difference. Before we go to break, Leslie Miller, Louise Excel, anything you'd like to say about this, about Common Ground? Well, I think this is exactly uh, what Chris is saying, exactly highlights the importance of a humanities approach. Um, That's what we do. We um, bring different points of view to the foreground, like... um, uh, Yvonne Martinelles and Steve Prims. Um, we don't ever want to look at 
any issue from one single point of view, but to bring all of these out so that we can have a, uh, we can clarify our own values by comparing and contrasting them with what others think um, and gain a, a better understanding of what common ground might be. Humanities really work. Let's, uh, let's go to break. Uh, we will uh, be back after this break. Uh, interesting new collection, Reimagining a Place for the Wild. And this is based on the uh, Reimagine um, Wild uh, Initiative uh, and a symposium, Reimagine Western Landscapes Symposium. Um, and we're talking with the editors, Leslie Miller, Louise Excel, and Christopher Smart. You can join the conversation if you would like by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. More following this break. This is Professor Beth Fouth for Bringing More to Life. What is empathy? It includes taking your aging parent's perspective and recognizing your parent's view as their truth, staying out of judgment, recognizing emotions and communicating that understanding to them. It is feeling with another person. It's being vulnerable to that same hurt or loneliness or loss they are expressing. Being empathetic takes time and effort. In our busy days as we balance our needs with the needs of our parents, it can be lost. Sharing feelings can bring more to their life in ways you never knew. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Arthur C. Brooks warns us not to treat political opponents with contempt, but nobody's perfect. I'm guilty, and I've seen myself on television rolling my eyes when somebody says something that I think is really incorrect. You have rolled your eyes on television? I have rolled my eyes on television. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty. I'm John Donvan. Can we improve the quality of political discourse by looking inward? Find out on the next Intelligence Squared U.S. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Reimagining a Place for the Wild is a new collection out from University of Utah Press. It contains a diverse collection of personal stories that describe encounters with the remaining wild creatures of the American West and critical essays that reveal wildlife's essential place in Western landscapes. We have with us the editors, Leslie Miller, who directs the Reimagine Western Landscapes Initiative. Louise Excel is Emeritus Professor of English and Humanities at Dixie State University. She now volunteers for various environmental projects. Uh, and uh, Christopher Smart has been a Utah journalist since 1983, formally educated uh, in, uh, in biology. Uh, let me start with you, Christopher Smart, the beginning of, uh, of this segment. Uh, we talked about this earlier, uh, about, and I asked the question, do you have to, you have to be out there? Do you have to be an avid uh, you know, hiker or, or whatever to, to, to uh, understand these stories? And the answer was no. I'm going to revisit this with, uh, through the lens of Aaron Holcomb. Uh, who has a piece in the book called Love Has No Net Zero Sum. Uh, so she's from Georgia, and uh, she enrolled in AmeriCorps, went, ended up in Oregon, out in the woods. And she says she went increasingly feral. I want to quote this. My lesson, she says, never underestimate the power to transform, to transcend. My invitation to you, go feral. <laughs> um, she said, in fact, uh, she got home after that summer, 
And uh, her mother said, well, that stuff on your back, that's a fungus. You, she apparently really went f- feral. <laughs> yeah, um, so Aaron's piece is just uh, so great. Um, and so it, it, you have a city girl, a city young woman, excuse me, and, and she, she signs up for this program. Uh, uh, you know, out of high school and, and goes into the wild and is is doing this work. It's it's pretty manual work out in nature, and so she comes face to face with um, things that we might take for granted. I mean, they aren't grizzly bears and wolves. You know, they're, they're squirrels and this sort of thing. But she, because she's out there for some period of time and is experiencing this, she drinks it in and it transforms her, um, as, as nature does. And so her, her experience is one, uh, I think of quiet enlightenment, if I may. Um, she doesn't uh, sing from the rooftops, but she she comes back with an experience that has really fulfilled her. And so um, when I think of all of us urbanites, and more and more, the, the population of the world in the United States is in cities, uh, and where we don't, you know, day to day we don't get these experiences, but... I I uh, I wonder uh, what would happen if all the kids in the inner city got to have this kind of experience because it would bring a new value to them. I mean, you can watch wolves on TV and not really kind of feel well, what this is all about. And without that... Um, it's. I think it's hard for us as a nation and for a global population to have the urgency that we ought to have now. As you know, the United Nations just came back with a report about you know losing hundreds of species are going extinct right now, and in each each one of those species has has a value that. Uh, many people don't understand that each one of those has an important link in, in our nature chain. And when that link is broken, you know, things begin to go awry. Uh, Leslie Miller, we, we, um, in your preface, you talk about uh, linking to what Christopher Smart just said, losing species. Um, and you, uh, you talk about massive declines in wildlife population in the American West. You cite one startling statistic, 29,000 mountain lions killed by hunters in the last decade. Uh, yes, and uh, <clears throat> to sort of follow up on what Christopher was talking about, you know, the power of a landscape or the natural world to inspire us. I, this book is an example of how Centennial Valley inspired me. We have all, living in the West, we have the privilege of being in and looking at and interacting with beautiful landscapes. And I can tell you that when I first went to Centennial Valley, 
it, it, I was gobsmacked. It is one of the most magnificent valleys I have ever been in in the West. And it is a valley of grasslands and waterways. And in fact, it is the headwaters of the Missouri River. And one of the things that struck me about beyond and and the cirque of this, you know, of the Continental Divide and the Gravelies and these beautiful mountains, but one of the things that struck me the more I was there and the more I learned about this ecosystem was how vital these places are. It's west of West Yellowstone and Yellowstone National Park. And so it's wildlife that lives in national in Yellowstone National Park is dependent on these boundaries of the park for survival. And one of the remarkable stories about Centennial Valley is that it is beside the headwaters of the Missouri River, it is the home to the Red Rock uh, Lakes National Wildlife Refuge. And in 1930s, the trumpeter swan was near extinction, but they found a, a, a couple pairs, and the government had the good sense to protect their nesting habitat. And now those big, beautiful birds have been restored to a healthy population. And so I guess I can't say enough about what Chris was saying is that we need to engage with our natural world in order to be inspired by it and then to take action. And that's what we did with this book. And the diverse opinions and perspectives in this book were deliberate. My idea was we need, like a pointless painting, we need to have all these different colors and then stand back and see if we can't have a reimagined vision for going forward and how we deal with our environmental uh, challenges. Louise Excel, I'd, I'd, uh, I don't know if you have the book with you. Um, at, at page uh, 40, uh, the, the uh, essay by John Varley. Yes. And you, uh, you write the uh, the brief introductions to each of the essays. I was struck by uh, you. You chose to quote uh, a poet, Francis Thompson. I wonder if you could read that. Uh, just read your introduction to John Barley's uh, okay. piece. Okay. Um, let me get that. Okay. Um, the nineteenth-century poet Francis Thompson writes: "All things by immortal power, near or far, hiddenly." who each other linked are, that thou canst not stir a flower without troubling a star. Thompson seems to intuit the interconnectedness between the tangible and immediate flower and the unseen distant star. Likewise, John Varley skillfully asks us to consider a universe of microfauna that fall outside our gaze and awareness a universe no less vital to the planet's well-being than its charismatic megafauna. And in this essay, uh, John Varley, who is um, also uh, comes uh, to us uh, from with a scientific background, a biologist, um, and uh, uh, I believe chief naturalist at Yellowstone National Park. Uh, is that correct, Leslie? 
Naturally. He, was, he was the founding director of the Natural Resources Department or Division of the Yellowstone National Park, and right. he is in and I uh, he's really a living legend in the Greater Yellowstone region. He is revered for his uh, scientific breakthroughs and his sensitivity to uh, the natural world. Yeah, and in, and in this essay, um, he he does take us in a different direction because when we think of wildlife conservation, we often think about uh, the charismatic megafauna, the big animals of the American West, from the bison, the grizzly, the elk, the moose, the mountain lion. But Varley takes us into the steaming hot pools of Yellowstone and introduces us to the um, cytoplankton and and other minute, um, so minute as to be invisible to the naked eye, creatures uh, that inhabit those places and what they can teach us about um, survival and about um, evolution in our world. It, it's a fascinating uh, essay. Yeah, that's. It was interesting to me that he talks about the, uh, the, you know, the species Olympics, and that we, we shouldn't uh, focus. You know, it's it's good to focus on the megafauna, but there there are there's fascinating life uh, beyond that. Yeah, and several of uh, several of the writers in this book um, touch on that uh, in their essays. Can I, could I point to another one that yes. I think is? is just really vivid. And uh, we're going back now to Jeremy Schmidt in Waiting for Wolves. He says, and I quote, I think it is safe to say that most creatures on Earth live their lives without regard for what we see as the clearly defined boundaries of civilization. Cockroaches, which as a species have been around for 250 million years, do not live tame. Do rats or houseflies? or the spider on the living room ceiling. Lichens grow on marble statues as easily as on granite cliffs. Grass pushes determinedly through the cracks in concrete sidewalks. Over 400 separate wild plant species thrive in inner-city Cleveland, not one of them the product of agriculture. On the tiniest plots of ground, they appear of their own accord, growing wild. I have read that in the narrow column of air above a person's head on a Midwestern summer evening, there are 5,000 insects floating and flying. We look up at the emerging stars through a blur of unseen wings. Beautiful. Yeah, very beautiful. Um, Christopher Smart, I wonder, uh, I'd like to talk a bit about, and this is a, a nice segue to this, um, uh, Julie Corbett, wonderful writer, I've, I've uh, interviewed her on this program. Uh, she teaches um, environmental communications, and she asks students to list animals on two blackboards, one labeled good and the other bad. And we do tend to do this, I think, in our lives. Well, yeah, I, we do, uh, particularly in this culture where um we we have i think grown up all of us uh pretty much with uh stories and books and movies and tv where there are you know the good animals and the villain um and that's 
So that, I don't know, that's just a cultural norm for us. But uh, getting beyond that, uh, we ought to understand that, well, hopefully we can grow to understand that each one of those species is important. Um, you know, there's there's the old saying that the wolf uh, makes the caribou strong. So each one of these uh, species, no matter how small, can can have an impact on the environment. And, and I remember, you know, 30 years ago when we were constructing a dam uh, called the Jordanelle up in Wasatch County, part of the Central Utah Project, and there is a, a big debate because there was a rare spotted frog or spotted toad, and, and it, it was uh, on the endangered species list, and, and the dam was going to, you know, have a major impact on that. And, and our elected leaders are saying, you know, that's just a small species. I mean, who cares? You know, we, we're, we're, we care about eagles, but, you know, who, who needs toads? And, and there's, um, there's a danger there. Uh, you know, one, uh, we have seen varmints, uh, so-called varmints like wolves, and, and, you know, historically, at least in our history, our young history as a nation, ranchers don't like predators. And so there, there was this move uh, several decades ago to, you know, rid, rid the West of, well, actually it's been going on for a century, trying to rid the West of wolves. But what we saw in just in the last decade with the reintroduction of the wolf into Yellowstone was the the entire ecosystem reacted favorably, and things just it was like getting a, a shot in the arm. The entire ecosystem uh, improved with the with the reintroduction of the predator. So there are things that, you know, we, we, we don't know. And, and it, you know, so we, the science has value, of course. But uh, for, for many of us, the, uh, we, we don't know how much we don't know. And, and there's, a, there's a, a good essay in this book by Jeffrey Mathis McCarthy. And he... Um, he speaks to that in in terms of uh, you know good and bad, but but our our impact on the natural world. And so he he gives this warning. He says the world's leading biologists and ecologists warn of a collapse of a sixth extinction, and the blame lies with a culture that disunites people from natural communities that surround them. You can point to Bacon. You can point to Descartes. You can point to the Old Testament, but the problem is playing out right now, right here, for us to take up or to sidestep. And so we, our culture needs to broaden its understanding of nature, I think, in order to, if we are, you know, going to save, save some of these valuable species that are, are critical for, to the environment as a whole. Let's take another break when we come back with our last segment uh, on this. Uh, the book is Reimagining a Place for the Wild. We're talking with the editors, Leslie Miller, Louise Excel, and Christopher Smart. 
And you're welcome to join the conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, more following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. On the next Punamayo World Music Hour, we'll search for La Dolce Vita in post-war Italy and take a side trip for some fun with Italian music for kids. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for Vintage Italia, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking about a, a new collection from University of Utah Press. It's called Reimagining a Place for the Wild. And we have with us uh, the editors, Leslie Miller, who directs the Reimagined Western Landscapes Initiative, Louise Excel, Emeritus Professor of English and Humanities at Dixie State University, and uh, Utah journalist uh, Christopher uh, Smart. Uh, so I want to start uh, this segment. We just have about oh, uh, eight minutes uh, left, so we're moving toward conclusion of the conversation here. Uh, Leslie Miller, I wanted to, before we left, I wanted to uh, treat Kirk Robinson, uh, a beautiful essay. It's called the Beauty yeah. as a Foundation for Conservation Ethics. Uh, this is, uh, if you have your book with you, I wonder if you could uh, read just a, a bit of this, page 109. I do. Just one second. Yeah. Get to it. And he quotes, he says he, he, he recounts what he calls his Aldo Leopold moment, where as a young man he went out, he, uh, he, he killed an owl, and then the, the owl's yeah. companion follows him and, and stares at him. Uh, what, I, what I would like is to, and I had not encountered this before, I'd missed this, Aldo, the, the actual Aldo Leopold moment where, where he kills a wolf. Um, um, in Thinking Like a Mountain? Yes. Is that the, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that paragraph. Uh, okay, so Kirk recounts uh, Leopold's essay in Thinking Like a Mountain, and he said, Leopold recounts an experience from the time he was a young forest assistant when he participated in killing a Mexican wolf, a.k.a. Lobo, and her pups. Today, the Mexican wolf is on the brink of extinction, with just over 100 lobos living in the wild in the United States and Mexico, all of them descended from the last seven lobos on Earth. After raining a fusillade of bullets on some wolves they speed in a gorge, Leopold and his companion climbed down to where the wolves lay bleeding, arriving in time for him to, quote, watch a fierce green fire dying in her eyes, unquote. He quotes, he goes on to say, I realized then and have known ever since that there was something new to me in those eyes, something known only to her and to the mountain, unquote. Leopold saw something in the eyes of the old wolf that suggested an ancient connection between it and the mountain, 
I don't think we will go wrong if we understand the wolf to represent wildness, the ultimate otherness, the antipode of the human-dominated world, and the mountain to represent wilderness, the place of wildness. And if I could just say something after that, I, I think collectively <clears throat> that what this book is about really is moving, as this passage talks about, is moving beyond self-awareness towards a recognition and compassion for the other. And in this case, the other is the wild. And we are facing an existential crisis of mass extinction, as outlined in the UN summary, and, and, and anecdotally, we can see that all around us. And I guess what I hope is that our narratives, like Kirk's and like some of the readings that... Uh, we share today will evoke empathy and develop an understanding, but beyond that, that they will inspire some action to protect the natural world. We have to act. It's one thing to reimagine, but what we're hoping here is a radical hope that reimagining will lead to action. Let's uh, begin. That's a great place to begin our summing up here. We just have about uh, four minutes. So, Louise Excel, what's uh, what's the takeaway you hope people take from the book and from this discussion? I I don't think I could say it better than Leslie just said it. Um, ultimately, we do we do hope that this will be the impetus, um, a call for action, if you will. Uh, it is an existential crisis. We human beings are so connected to the animals and the, all of the creatures, plants around us in the world, and we really do have a, I think, an ethical, if not moral, obligation to take it seriously and and to act. And maybe I just say. In conclusion, um, the the final two essays in this collection were written by um, practitioners in the humanities. One of them was um, Professor McCarthy. Chris referred to him. The other is Timothy Bywater, one of my um, colleagues at uh, Dixie State. And he said, maybe sometime in the future, the natural world will be seen as a place we don't escape to but it's a place that dwells in our hearts, constantly influencing our daily lives, the lives of others, and the landscapes where we live. Then the power of the rain's message will have helped us discover an inroad to reimagine our Western landscapes and the landscapes of our hearts. Beautiful. Uh, just about a minute left. Uh, Christopher Smart will give you the last word. What's, uh, what's the takeaway you hope uh, people uh, take away from this discussion or the book? Well, so when I was first reading these essays, um, I, you know, I was just struck by how, what a fun read it was, and how these disparate collection of writers uh, brought with them um, some of those uh, aha moments uh, where you you are just in. They bring you into the natural world, and that they they remind us that we are uh, part of nature. And this they bring with them 
a, this sense of awe that urges us to care for and, and nurture the natural world. And, and in that sense, uh, it was just a, really a beautiful thing. Well, uh, uh, well worth the read. This is out from University of Utah Press, Reimagining a Place for the Wild. We've had with us uh, the editors. Yes, yes. Go ahead. I think the best way for people to uh, purchase the book is to contact their local independent uh, bookstore or to go online to uofupress.org. Okay, excellent. And the book is Reimagining a Place for the Wild. Uh, Leslie Miller, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tom. We really appreciate being on air with you. Uh, Louise Excel, thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Tom, and thank you for Access Utah. It's really a gift to the state. Oh, th- thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, Christopher Smart, thank you. Thanks, Tom. I wanted to add uh, my thanks to you for doing what you do. Thank you. Appreciate that. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM Logan. Also heard online at upr.org. Utah Public Radio would like to thank Palmer Home Furnishings and Mountain Ridge Furniture for becoming our newest sponsors. For more information on how you can become a sponsor, email debbie.andrew at usu.edu. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to download our UPR app so you can listen anywhere.